Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You can be punished in this business for doing the right thing. You might look at my portfolio and say, wow, you really underperformed. And I would say, no, 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 no. Then we're defining the goals differently. It performed exactly like I wanted it to perform. And there are parts in that portfolio that behave just like I wanted them to. And that may make the overall portfolio return less, but it did what I wanted it to do. The longest bull market in U.S. history. Risk. Bring it on. Cash is trash. But. How do high net worth families invest in this era of risk amnesia? Stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's The Most Popular Market in Virginia is voted by many publications. You can catch them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. You'll see me there at breakfast where the delicious Blanchard coffees spout forth. There's Indian Wednesdays with Malabar's Indian food coming in. There's the Beat Cafe. Visit them again at the top of Carytown and at ElwoodThompson's.com. Joining me in studio in historic downtown R of VA, uh, two investors, veteran investors, Brian Broadway, second time on the show. He's at Griffin Capital Management, an investment management shop for a multi-generational family office. How are you, sir? I'm well, Robin. How are you? Welcome back. It's good to be back. And joined by Biff Pusey, director of Valpar Investments, also a family investment shop. In past lives, Biff was in private equity and venture capital. Welcome to Full Disclosure. Thanks for inviting me. You know, the jump ball that I threw up at both of you when when I invited you on was you have this data point of this being the longest bull market in history. March of 2009, it's, it's hard to think back. You talk about risk amnesia to how perilous that time was. Stocks were in a free fall. We're worried about Citigroup failing and TARP not working and the Fed having to backstop several firms and an unending liability to AIG. Here we are, not even 10 years later, stock market's at an all-time high. Risk has been on indefinitely. Apple breaks a trillion-dollar market cap. Amazon approaching a trillion dollars. The venture capital window is open. Investing is just all the rage through indexes and passive investing. What's left for you guys to do? Well, Robin, I think your characterization of the last nine years is pretty accurate. It's interesting thinking back on the peril, having lived through Biff and I both were in the markets in 07, 08, 09, and the fear and trepidation with which you wrestled every day was just palpable. I mean, it wasn't just, was Citigroup going to fail? You know, Goldman had to be bailed out by Warren Buffett and all the great institutions whether we knew it or not, we're facing daunting futures. And here we are, you know, nine years, 10 years later, and it's like it never happened. It's like people's short-term memory of that kind of risk is, and what can happen, and what is shown historically to happen again and again and again is amazing. They just forget. It's like it never happened, or it won't happen again. It won't be like it was that time. And so as investors that were in the middle of that, I have to remind myself every day, it can happen again, probably will happen again. And how do I think about the investing world in light of the experiences that I lived through? How do you prove your mettle, Biff, to to families when they could have just been passive in this and set it and forget it? Be the market, don't beat the market. Um, I know Brian has been averse to kind of nakedly being exposed to the S&P 500 his whole investing career, but that's really worked for the longest time. Well, when I speak to family members, I bring to their recollection a meeting we had in 2009 
where we sat down and discussed the distribution flow from our family investment company as probably going to be impaired, which would have a significant lifestyle impairment. And that was not so long ago. And yet, as Brian says, they have forgotten this. And so taking them back to that moment when we all felt that palpable fear reminds them. And so then we can talk about the importance of a diversified portfolio and not necessarily capturing all the gains in a risk-on market, but staying diversified and retaining gains over long periods of time because that's the way you win for a long-term family portfolio is avoiding losses and modestly keeping the gains. So the enormous drawdown of 2008, which I believe is on the order of 39%, very pungent, very palpable. As I like to tell people, a cousin I hardly ever hear from from California called me from her Wells Fargo brokerage office in tears. And she was, you know, in 30-somethings back then wanting to liquidate the whole thing, which I've read in in all the famous investing books and everything, that's a contra-buy indicator. When that happens and everybody's capitulating, but there was true fear and panic on the streets. And I don't think we've had anything approaching that since 2011 with the rolling European crises. And we very nearly hit a bear market, the definition of a bear market being a 20% decline from the top. But, you know, it's been all upside since then. And there was a taper tantrum and everything. And all the downside seems to be muted. I mean, as I shake my head, I'm thinking you you can't forget what the realities of the market might be. Hearing you describe um, about the S&P, that I am not a proponent of just being long the S&P, for a whole host of reasons, that is correct, you and I have talked about ad nauseum. I mean, if Biff and I were to come up with a trading system, an intellectual, algorithmic, systematic trading system that had the statistical profile of the S&P 500, we would not raise a dime. It would be impossible. Annualized return of 7.5%, 8%, volatility of 15%, max drawdown of 40 or 50 uh, You could not raise a dollar, yet the S&P people just pile in. So for some reason, they feel like, well, I'm just, I'm okay with it being the S&P because I've got to have it in my portfolio, but from a standalone sort of asset class risk return profile, I'm just not sure there's really anything worse. I mean, there obviously there are things worse. Leveraged S&P for instance, or inverse leveraged. Triple inverse leveraged. Derivatives, which those are fantastic, which we should talk about what happened in February <laughs> uh, to XIV. several traders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. So I agree that just buying into the fact that you can be passively long an asset class, cross your fingers, close your eyes, and hope it works out just doesn't seem like what reasonable people would do. We're, we're treating our portfolios like we don't treat any other part of our life. Uh, just set it and cross our fingers and... Hope, really. You've seen the Ibbotson data, though, going back to 1926. I know past is not always, you know, a guarantee of future performance and prologue. But gosh, especially with the small cap premium and everything else, the rule of 72 says your money at 7.2% a year compounding doubles every 10 years. And you've been able to get a premium on that on a basket, a diversified basket of S&P 500, more so if you've gone into small cap, more so if you've gone into value and international This has become a huge, much more than a cult. You look at Vanguard and BlackRock. You look at the ETF wars right now. I mean, people have just gone in droves into passive investing. Kool-Aid, meet Robin. What's that? Faith-based investing. Yeah, faith-based investing. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it works great. The cross-fingers approach, and you can come up with whatever statistical uh, nuances that would support your uh, thesis, Mr. Farzad, as, as you are off to do. But it's not a thoughtful, well-reasoned approach. Because um, if you took that approach 
and uh, hung through 2008, all the different corrections we've had. It's just, it's crazy risky. And most investors uh, on the way up, they love risk and on the way down, they hate risk. And so one of the things that we often talk about within the family and within professionals that do what we do is what are your goals? And not to be retail brokerage on everybody, but you got to think about that. If your goal is to beat the market, right, which everyone claims it is, then we can do that every day. I can do that all the time, right? There are things you can do, but it's that shouldn't be your goal, right? Because you got to have it. I think you need to think about risk-adjusted returns, not just returns. So everything you keep talking about are just returns. Well, gosh, if it's just about returns, then I don't even know that investing risk in is defined by what. Well, oh, good question. That's that's a meaning of Correct. life question, Biff. Risk right now, risk is more than volatility, and that's what most people think of as risk. And even if they're not taking it, uh, consideration of it in their S and P long only portfolio, so there's liquidity risk. So the investors that, that through 2008, 2009 couldn't hold on through it. They had to sell at the wrong time. We saw that with money market funds. We saw that. Absolutely. You didn't realize if you take for granted, there's always going to be a modicum of liquidity for your securities to be sold. But when the market freezes up and Wall Street saw that institutionally, you needed the Fed to come in and inject liquidity into the system. Yeah. And the downside volatility on the S&P is huge. As you noted, it's 50%, roughly speaking. Not many people want to experience a 50% down in their in their portfolios, particularly if they don't have the liquidity to survive it. If here's you do, the, you, can, thing, say, Biff, you though, can say through it. You're coming in with pitch books and meetings and right now and talking about this mostly theoretically because practically it hasn't happened for a decade. It's a harder sell over time. It's like, you know, Elaine, Elaine What's Garza, a harder sell? Elaine Garzarelli was hitting on the same thing well after 1987. Nouriel Rabini is out there saying the same, you know, pitching the same book that he did in 2007 and 2008. And if time you're a perma your barrier enemy. once, you're right, once every cycle, right? Right. I mean, they say a broken watch is right twice a day, yeah. correct? So this is the hard thing. This is what I kind of want to get at with you is, is as you find that you're preaching to an increasingly much more difficult audience with investment councils. and there, There's no question about that. You hit on, a, I think, a very important topic, which is how people understand and view the world, how they understand and view the markets and expectations. It's almost like we have to understand and educate. It's about worldview. When I talk to different guys that do what we do, one of the things I always try to understand is how they view the world, how they view their goals, what they want to achieve in their investment portfolio. Once you understand that, we can have a very enlightened conversation about all kinds of stuff. But if we see the world differently, as I'm guessing you and I might, uh, then we're just going to, we're going to talk about risks differently. We're going to talk about portfolio returns, what our objectives are, what Doing the, you can be punished in this business for doing the right thing. And you can, you might look at my portfolio and say, wow, you really underperformed. And I would say, no, 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 no. Then we're defining the goals differently. It performed exactly like I wanted it to perform. And there are parts in that portfolio that behave just like I wanted them to. And that may make the overall portfolio return less, but it did what I wanted it to do. So I, I think you have to understand someone's worldview and their perspective and what their goals are. And if it is, in fact, to have a reasonable approach to risk and return, then your portfolio is going to look different than just long S&Ps. If all you care about are fees, if that's all that's important to you, then buy S&P futures for seven bucks a, or the heck, two fifty a round turn and buy futures. That's it. And have a cash account at, at Goldman. But if you're portfolio is designed to be a long-term wealth preservation vehicle for families, then it's got to be something more than long and 
hope. Yeah, I think that humility is a big part of success in investing. It's not chasing after every return. It's not believing you can beat markets or market time. I think creating the all-weather portfolio where you keep your gains, avoid the losses, and stay in the market while also preserving the liquidity you need for your life. And maybe if you have sufficient wealth to invest in a business opportunity or get in some private markets where the returns really come from, then you've done a more successful job of investing. I think those who think that they can get diversification in just U.S. long only are kidding themselves. Now, we've seen correlations break down a little bit of late, but for the most of the risk-on period this last eight or 10 years, correlations have been very tight. There's no diversification in just a ETF portfolio of, of equities. None. Well, very little. And so I just think that there's way more risk embedded in that kind of a portfolio than people take into account. But man, when the S&P is up, they just want to ride that horse. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Biff Pusey and Brian Broadway. They are family investment gurus. They're talking to us about the, the definition of risk, complacency in the market, what families are talking about with markets at an all-time high and this bull market being the longest in U.S. history since March of 2009. Brian, there's a little anecdote I want to bring to mind. You and I uh, met for breakfast several months ago, and your car conked out. And we were talking about um, in it. I was like, listen, why do you want to replace the engine or if it's a significant you know, outlay for you? And you're like, are you kidding me? I, I finance my vehicles, and I do them when this comes out. And it brought up this, this side conversation about opportunity cost of money. And like, I don't want to have say 20 grand, let's say 25 grand parked in a car when I can put it into a specific, you know, there's a market opportunity cost for you. And I asked you, is that the S&P 500? You're like, hell no. It's, you know, you've invested your old shop, Chesapeake Capital Management and trend following. for instance. How do you define the opportunity cost of, of, of cash in a situation like that? Like I can buy a new car for 30 grand or I can put it in the market. You and I define market as, as different things. I wasn't aware that we did, but apparently we do. You, uh, I said, well, yeah. I mean, I could put that in an S and P five hundred index or something. You're like, I would never just buy the spiders. I see. I thought you were talking about cars. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I would not. Um, you're right. I would not invest in the S and P five hundred. I think that we have enormous amount of exposure. I think, generally speaking, whether it's through our retirement accounts or through um, sort of other investment opportunities that I have, I just feel like there are better ways to achieve what you're trying to achieve than the S&P. I think people are swayed by group thinking. Like, the, it's the S&P. I got to have it. I've been taught to have it. And it costs me eight basis points. Or if you open a new account, at, I think it's Fidelity. They'll give it to you, which I think is a brilliant move. Fidelity or Schwab, I think it's one of the two, is offering the S an S&P mutual fund for zero basis Fidelity points. Fidelity just came out and Yeah, it's great. It's a loss leader. Yeah, we'll give it to them. We'll the give you that for free. I mean, you could almost get it for free anyway through the futures market, right? It's so cheap to get a mini, and you could have in your portfolio for literally two bucks and keep rolling it. So, however often, you know. But it screams red lights to you, S and P five hundred. It screams. You're saying it's a it's a flawed methodology, like you said at the very outset. If I had to come to you with a pitch book identifying the S and P five hundred's, you know, let's say cap weighted risk adjusted returns and and the risk that you're getting and the reward that you're getting, like there's no way I'd be able to sell that blue sky. Well, one of the, the different— And yet it's selling like hotcakes. Well, one of the problems with the S&P—I'm not saying the S&P is bad. I'm saying that people pile into it and view it as a panacea for investment returns. I think that 
Biff and I, what we do all day, every day is look at investment strategies, talk to smart people around the world about how they go about approaching the markets and how to extract value from the markets. So if we can present to you a strategy or an idea or a portfolio that gives you the S&P return for half the risk and half the drawdown, why wouldn't you do that? Now, those are all net numbers. Why wouldn't you do that? Are you really offering that? Yeah. You're able to you're able to of offer it with less of the heartburn on the way down and everything. Of course. You, you synthetically recreate it. So why wouldn't everybody do that? Why I don't know. Why wouldn't it be but, because into it's an hard ETF? and it's expensive. And so we'll talk to investors that will say, I'm not investing in that because it's got a 1% management fee and a 10% incentive fee or a 0 and 30 structure. I'm not doing that. I'm like, I know. But if you build a portfolio of these things, if you're cost agnostic – we can build a portfolio that will give you the yes, – people do it all the time, but they don't understand the strategy. It takes a little more work. It involves a K-1, and the fees are higher. I'm like, you should be neutral on all that. What you're looking at is the net performance numbers, right? How did your portfolio do? Don't worry about what it costs. So net of fees. Yeah, of course. We only talk net of fees. Only talk so the fees. paradox is, is that when you're out there talking to the vanguards of the world and, and the Schwabs of the world, they're hitting you over the head with cost. Be Correct. intensely aware of cost. And I've, I'm it, talking to the DFA people and everything. It's like sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees if you're just intensely focused on cost. You're, mix, you're, you're completely short shrifting, uh, risk-adjusted returns, standard, you know, standard deviation. I don't, it's not called ketosis. I don't know these various other People, readings in it. Kurosis. Kurtosis. Kurtosis. I mean, I've flunked that part of the NBA, but um, <laughs> why, though? They, they, they're saying a, a lot of people, and you read Jason Zweig and, and the Buffett disciples and everything, they're saying ignore all that and be maniacal about fees and efficiency and simplicity. Well, recent history says that's right, but I don't think, again, past his prologue. I mean, with this long bull market, well, look. To be fair, I've been wrong for about four years that we're a late cycle. And I could be wrong for another four years. This thing could keep going because of tax cuts or the U.S. being the, the least ugly. What of if bunch, that adage, and you've heard this ad nauseum, the market can remain inefficient for longer than you can remain solvent? Yeah. How long can you keep this up? How long can well, that's, you? That's why you focus like first on solvency, wolf. right? That's why you don't want to get over your, your skis and in investing hmm. or in debt. Or something like that. If you've covered your lifestyle bucket, then your market capital markets bu- bucket can be at risk, right? You can actually put that out there and let it let it run through cycles. So then you don't worry so much about the cycles. You invest through cycles and you let that uh, long term graduation of returns work for you. So let me get this right, and let, let me drill down on it. So you're talking to a family and saying your lifestyle bucket. Let's get this out of the conversation of. You know, whether or not the S&P 500 does 20 up this year, 20 down, you need to right size and have expectations. By the way, it's a really stingy yield environment, as you know. So you're getting very little in terms of both risk-free rate for the market and the risk that you have to take to get some yield on the way up. But make that conversation absolutely different from the returns of the market and the returns uh, of our strategy with mean, mean reversion could take five years, could take 10 years. It could happen next year. Yes, all of the above. But getting your lifestyle bucket arranged, and that's your house, your insurance, that's your maybe your fixed income, although fixed income is tricky right now, um, with these very low interest rates, which still persist. If you haven't refinanced your house, and most people have by now, you should have done that a while ago. But anyway, you want to get your lifestyle costs, your lifestyle right size, whatever your income and your savings are. And then you can think about putting your other assets at risk in the markets or in preferably in private markets if you can get there. Hmm. Brian, I have an interesting stat. Went to my uh, – was my 10th mm. business school reunion in 
2015. And for some reason, I just wandered into a class where they had a presentation from the finance professor. It's is on the low volatility anomaly in investing. And this stat is actually from 1968 to 2012, and it still blows my mind, and, and the, the anomaly still holds. From 1968 through 2012 in the U.S. stock market, portfolios of low-risk stocks delivered on the promise of low risk as planned, but with surprisingly higher average returns. A dollar invested in the lowest risk portfolio between 68 and 2012 grew to $82, while a dollar invested in the highest risk portfolio grew to only, any idea? Little less than $10. A similar inverse relationship between risk and return appears from 89 through 2012 in 31 developed equity markets. A dollar invested in the lowest risk portfolio of global equities grew to $7.23. Meanwhile, a dollar invested in the highest risk global equity portfolio grew to only a buck 20 at the end of this period. The net, the upshot is this so-called low risk anomaly suggests a very basic form of market inefficiency. I know, did I just make you fall asleep? Brought a tear to my eye. But because it's emotional. Because it goes against everything they taught us in this risk versus return. But I think it does come to an inherent thing that you're talking about drawdowns. If you had a lower volatility portfolio over several decades, the General Mills, Kimberly Clarks, everything, it shows you how important not having naked exposure to these drawdowns is. Robin, do not confuse people with statistics. There are lies. There are damn lies. And there are statistics. Well, what did I say that's wrong? I didn't say you said anything was wrong. You, you, you are making the assumption. Well, academically, people are taught if you take more risk, you will get more return. That's what you're assuming, right? That's what you're suggesting. More risk equals more return. That is not the case. If you To achieve, typically, in capital markets, if you want to try and achieve higher returns, you often have to invest in assets that have a riskier price behavior, let's say. That doesn't mean people – I teach a class at University of Richmond every year, every spring, and I talk about that, that people say the riskier the asset, the higher return. That is not true. If you, if you, if you graph at risk and return, what happens is when you go out on the x-axis to more risk, the, the range of return gets higher. I should show you on a graph. I have a really cool graph I show them. Because everybody thinks the further you go out on the risk spectrum, the higher your return is going to be. If you have that's not true. at night, Brian, you don't count sheep. You think about these X and correct. Y axes. That's correct. Okay, X and Y axis. All right. Yeah. Right. So you, some of the assumptions that were loaded into that diatribe, I just think are – again, I just don't think it's completely accurate. You're not thinking about it correctly. That the low volatility outperformed and so there's this low volatility anomaly. I mean – Wait, but that's suggesting a really close thing to a free lunch for me. If I can take less – risk, less heartburn, less drawdown. And I mean, this is not an incidental. But you're saying the higher volatility, point. maybe the higher volatility stocks, more of them went to zero, right? So your survivorship bias is is skewing these numbers. That's a well. very important point. I would not think that it's this many orders of magnitude bigger, the outperformance. If that were true, Robin, if that were true, then people would just take that portfolio, lever it 3x and retire to South Beach, right? So clearly that's not a strategy. Leverage low – because there's also – what's the correlation between the low volatility stocks and the high volatility stocks? I bet it's really high. Right. In periods, in periods of market dislocation, I bet it's close to like one. And so – Where everything just falls out of bounds. Right. So what are you saying? Biff, do you want to weigh in here? Okay. Well, the, the example, 2008, there was one S&P 500 stock I believe that was up in 2008 was Campbell's Soup. Right? And even if it was up 
0.8% compared to being down 39%, which the the upside that you would have to have to make up for that 39% drawdown, which is like enormously traumatic. No, I think the S&P 500 fell 39% then. I can I can look it up. I would hope you will. Um, more like on the order of 40, 49%. 49. Right. Yeah, it's almost 50%. No, uh, S&P 500 in 2008? In March of 2009, the nadir, I thought it was that low. So did I. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, back on your earlier point about that professor's article. 54% from peak to trough, to trough between yeah. October 27 and March of 2009. Calendar year 2008 itself was at 39%. Right. Yeah, people say the, the market crash was down in 2008. 50. Most people just would so say yeah, during you the- effectively got cut in half in no time at all. But I will say this in the defense. It only took until about mid-2013 from a total return perspective it, to be at the all-time highs again. Robin, I know you, you play fast and loose with, with the facts, and I'm okay with that. Um, it wasn't you lost down 50 in a short amount of time. It was not. That's the fallacy. If you look at the market, at the S&P, and you just run a 200-day moving average over it, 250-day moving average over it, it went below the 200-day moving average, I believe, in late February of 08. So there were signs that things were happening in early 08, right? And it went all, it, it crept down, all a steady, slow decline the first quarter, the second quarter, and it wasn't until the third quarter in September that you saw these precipitous falls. But if you pull a chart up, you can see there were things going on. I think that is one of the differences in what you'll see in the next market issue is it will be much quicker and much more violent. There will not be these early stuff. There are plenty of people in the investment world that were waving flags. Usually it was the technical algorithmic traders, which back in 08 were still, you know, people thought they were using magic eight balls to determine trading signals. Now, if you don't have any sort of systematic, programmatic, algorithm, you can't raise money. But back then, it was all crazy. All the systems guys... Like something's going on. Many of them were short the S&P in February. And so that's why they all did, most of them did very, very well in 08 is because there were signs in the market that things were, so it didn't come upon us. It was not quick. It will be next time because of all these systematic trades. I think there's a ton of pressure. You've seen it when the market's had a blip in the last couple of years. They are violent. I don't know what a correction is anymore. It barely ever happens these days. I almost expect my third grader to turn to me and say, Daddy, what's a I correction? Think low volatility over a long period of time is created quiescence. People are just have this hope-filled strategy that the markets will just recover. And that's great until we get a real true drawdown. And the other, the other complicating factor here is Federal Reserve and other central bank intervention. Are we in a new era of governments propping things up? That's created this low volatility environment, this risk on opportunity in markets. What are they going to do this next correction? Are they going to try to jump back in when they already have balance sheets at, what, $17 trillion or something? That they're trying to unwind. Theoretically. Theoretically. And, and that's good. I think for any true capitalist or market person, that's a good thing. But we got a long way to go on that. Okay, so Biff has heard this spiel from me before, and I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but there's a great paper written by a money manager overseas in, in Europe called Transtrend, and it talks about low-risk environments. And if – not that we have to agree, but if we, we look at a Gaussian distribution, a normalized distribution of returns, if more of the returns are in a very low distribution, right – it's very low returns. The distribution is very peaky. Does that make sense, Robin? Yeah. Right. So in a very peaky return, people think, oh, gosh, that means your tails get smaller. Does that make sense? They get smaller. They don't. They actually get 
this is just the math of statistics, and you can read the paper. It's a great paper. When the distribution of returns gets peakier in a normalized Gaussian distribution, the actual, while the probability of a correction may get less, the size of the correction, magnitude, magnitude higher. So what you're saying is, if you believe that central banks and the activity they've had over the last 10 years have removed risk from the market, right, then you should take all of your assets, your risk assets, and pile them into the S&P, right? Which is what people, no one believes that. No one believes that the central banks have the ability to remove risk from the markets, right? And so if we, we don't think they can do that, and we believe that math matters. So in a Gaussian distribution, which is what we're talking about, the risk hasn't been taken out of the markets. The probability is decreased of a correction, but the size of the correction is actually increased by a magnitude. So actually the markets have gotten riskier from that point of view. Does that make sense? Right. The paper is fascinating. We we don't actually talk about that often because people glaze over. I have over. to ask, how frustrating is it for you guys? Do you, do you feel like you're that man with the poster on the sidelines saying, you know, the hell days are coming, the end, is near. The end is near. If and it's harder and harder for you to do that year in, year out. If you work with families, then you bear what we call, what I call, Thanksgiving Day risk, which is where you have to sit around with the family and say, oh, here's what we did and here's what we did wrong. And they're always asking what you did wrong. Couldn't you get this right? Why didn't you trade out of these things at the right or the wrong time? So there's a, it's sort of a no good deed goes unpunished. And yet, as Brian noted, you still have to sing the siren song of, of good investing and good long-term, um, I don't know, investment methodology, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You can't get caught up in the most recent fads. But there's also a level of sophistication that I think most investors miss and their advisors also miss. And you can see that in portfolio return statistics where most markets are up over time and most investor portfolios are not up anywhere near that, even in a decently diversified portfolio. And what that points to is the investors and their advisors sell at the wrong time and buy at the wrong time. Biff, to what extent are families measuring you up against the S&P 500 or a Russell 3000 type thing? I just had a lunch thing? this week with a family member whose name I won't mention, Mom. But she was saying, <laughs> how come my portfolio is only up a you know less than uh, a single percentage point for the first six months of this year? And I pointed out to her that the all-country world index and the ag, the Barclays ag bond index were both down during that period. And the fact that she was up at all is a huge win. And she's saying, but yeah, I don't see the same numbers up that I saw the last couple of years. What are you doing wrong? You know, sometimes you just can only take what the market gives you and you have to be patient with that. But I did point out to her, you cannot expect these next 10 years to look like the last 10 years. Sure. Brian Broadway, uh, Griffin Capital Management, I want you to take me to international. I know we, we don't always get granular with these things, but it That's has been... That's north of the Mason-Dixon line. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, this has been a lost decade for emerging market and MSCI world investors. It's just been a flat index. They've never revisited the highs they saw in 2007, unlike the United States stock market, especially the NASDAQ and consumer discretionary things and, I mean, huge popular cocktail party equities like Apple and Tesla and Amazon approaching a trillion dollars. Um, it's kind of hard to hold anybody's hands and saying maybe the upside opportunity is in international. You talk about recency bias, right? Correct. Talk about what bias? Recency. Recency Everybody, bias. So, right. yeah, in this example so the international mom, stocks are underperformed. Or so vastly. Emerging is underperformed domestic. Yeah, I mean, for example, if you want to hold somebody's hands right now and say, listen, it might pay to – I, I think the stat was that I just saw recently out of UVA was – 
the uh, the the portion um, the proportion of United States market capitalization to global capitalization is more skewed than it has been since year two thousand, and we know what that ultimately led to. There was a great period of outperformance for international in the early aughts, when the U.S. had its lost decade. And Biff, you talk about you know curbing people's enthusiasms for mm-hmm. returns over the next ten years. It's got to be so hard to hold somebody's hands and say, listen. Take these chips off the table. One, you know, put more into cash and wait for the opportunity. And two, buy something that's been so forgotten and so neglected. Yeah, market reversion trades are actually very profitable if you can get convince people to do that because it's hard to come out of something that's a winner. You want to ride your winners till they till they end. Problem is, you don't know when that's that end's going to come. The thing about emerging markets is that demographics say that's where all the growth is going to be because of the young population, particularly in India, but also in China and some of the other ti- tigers. Um, the the, the hard part now is with this new tariff regime we're in, U.S. currency is just through the roof. Um, the uh, predominant debt in emerging markets is U.S. dollar denominated, which makes it difficult to be repaid right now. And there's a lot more debt out there than there used to be. So it's a really wickedly hard time to invest abroad and particularly in public names because there's some thin float issues or other sort of structural issues around investing and all that. So private markets and emerging markets are really interesting and opportunistic. Public markets, yeah, they've been down. But I would say that now's maybe the right time to start allocating a little bit more over there. And here's another jump ball for you. You talked to somebody like Jan- Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, which, you know, say now August of 1976 founded the first S&P 500 index fund. And you think about how much Vanguard's now a $5 trillion beast. He doesn't believe that you need to diversify any more than the S&P 500, that it's a sufficiently diversified mousetrap. After all, you, we hear about it ad nauseum. It, it derives half of its revenue abroad. You know, we had Tom Gaynor on the show here previously, and he's like, is Honda an American company or a Japanese company? Yeah. You guys the same thing about Markel. <laughs> and I'm coming back to you again. Right. This comes back to the conversation. Maybe the S&P 500 is the best anybody can do. It might be. I would say that um, all of your money in any particular strategy or asset class would be bad. So please don't construe what I'm saying is that the S&P – is the evil empire. It's not. I think if people view it as a panacea or if it's just you buy it and you leave it alone, I think there is a role for the S&P in a portfolio. And I understand what he's saying about the diversification and the exposure where it's getting. I, I agree with all that. I get that. I just think people shouldn't look at it as the answer to how they're going to grow their portfolio without drawdowns or without you know a ton of volatility uh, going forward. Uh, so I think that it's fine. I just don't think it should be the only thing or it should be the answer to everything. I think that there is a role for it in a portfolio, whether it's domestic or international where it's driving. I think there's a place for it, but just not to, this, to, to the degree that most people think. But, uh, to, I mean, I, I think you make a point more clear, and that is the higher the correlations are in the, across the globe now. U.S. companies are truly international. Half of their revenues come from overseas sales. But you're, you have to be careful because of the currency risks. I mean, if you're using just U.S. dollar denom- denomination, that's one thing. But if you're deriving dollars in, or current, you know, your revenues in other currencies in other countries, you've got to pay attention to that. And you need to know if your companies you're invested in are any good at currency management. I think the other thing is, Brian, I think would agree with me, you don't throw the S&P out because it really is the, the prettiest bride right now to walk down the aisle with. But you think about how you invest in that. It's not just indexing, notwithstanding what Mr. Bogle would say. It's probably a combination of 
passive indexing for low-cost beta allocation, but it's also active management where now with correlation starting to break down a little bit, we have a little bit more dispersion. Then you have active managers. If they're good at this, they can make money in that in a long-only context, but also maybe in a long-short context if you can access those hedge funds able to do that. Yeah, very basic question I have in that you deal with families is one of the biggest laments and frustrations over this period of unbelievable market returns and capital gains and, and paper losses and maybe unrealized gains is the hesitation to sell because of doubt about reinvestment. Where am I going to put that cash into? This is a high-class problem to have, but I yeah. hear it. I talk to individual businesses and families. Absolutely I'm fair. staying in the thing because cash is trash. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The various sundry conferences that I think both of us troll in, that is a big question, a question that families think about, investors think about, you know, what are my alternatives? Like, what what am I looking to accomplish? You know, if I'm taking risk out of that bucket, where is it going to go? And one of the things that I've seen more and more, it's, it's hard, but putting it in the private markets, right? I've seen a preponderance. I was out west um, at a conference in the fourth quarter and no one was putting money in the public markets. They're all putting money. All these families, these are super sophisticated, really large. It's hosted by Stanford. It's a great conference. And they were talking about only the private markets. That's where you need to go, the U.S. and abroad. Now, you have to understand the liquidity issues and the time frame. And they were all thinking, you know, we've taken risk out of the public markets, the public equity markets, and we're going to put it in the private markets. But we've earmarked that for sort of a I don't know, five to seven, maybe a little bit longer time frame. Ten to 15. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were – Looking all over the world, particularly in South America, uh, in the U.S., the, the, the pushback in the U.S. Th- that I've heard a number of times, I heard it this week as well, is that there's so much money on the sidelines chasing private market deals that they've gotten really, really rich. Uh, so the, uh, by that, I mean super, super pricey. And so the, the risk to return, uh, the return on the invested capital, the expectations are getting lower and lower. I'm thinking, gosh, for illiquidity premium that you're supposed to get and and whatnot, just seems like that is not a great place. And so, again, they're chasing smaller and smaller deals, and they're going uh, to different countries. Yeah, and they're looking at different kinds of deals too. I mean, it's if you're in a mildly inflationary, mildly rising rate environment, which may or may not be the case right now, real assets are really where you want to be. And so, for the families of wealth who can do this, they're looking at private equity, they're looking at private real estate, they're looking at maybe even ag deals. Timber trusts and timber, the like. Well, timber, that's a, that's a longer discussion. People but, talk about, I mean, people talked about farmland about yeah, this. And, and actually farmland in the, in the you know, east of the Mississippi where it's well watered, you can transition from cotton to vegetables. That's a real up. So is that where you need to get esoteric with families and say, that's what you're paying me to Some, do as an active manager? Is these, these are not available. Like, look, in the efficient market frontier, when they teach you in, you know, MBA 101 is you want to buy, theoretically, you want to buy a bit of every asset on the planet for as little cost as possible to be on the part of the frontier where I'm maximizing return for the most dispersed risk. In practice, that's not possible. In practice, only so many equities are securitized and only so many ways to get a proxy for South American alpacas or Mexican avocados that you need Sherpas like you guys to go out and and find private equity things or illiquid markets. Correct. I I think that's absolutely right. this search and diligence is – it's why a lot of families have full-time folks to, to, to seek that out, that not everybody, not all investors have that opportunity, but trying to find new and different things. So one of the, the ideas and one of the issues we struggle with all the time is identifying opportunities and identifying the risks associated with those opportunities. 
right? Because we're looking for things that are different. We're looking – we looked at some really interesting hydro deals, which I'd never seen before. Hydro Fa- deals? Hydro deals, yeah. It's a fascinating – that could be a whole other topic. Well, what the heck hydro is that? Power or hydro power? Hydro power. Hydro power. Yeah, yeah. Um, power generation. And there's only a certain – we won't chase that rabbit. So hydro deals is one that we've looked at recently. Um, smaller, smaller and smaller deals. I mean, earlier and earlier stage, hoping that – it feels like you're scratching lottery tickets, but that's just – well, with the overhang in private equity funds, you want to build things to sell to those guys. Where all that money is, there's it's just waiting for buying opportunities. So if you can build things to sell into it, that's a really interesting opportunity. But that's sort of a five to ten year kind of deal. And These opportunity zone deals have, are have you- yeah, the t- opportunity zone deals are interesting. You know, most real estate managers don't know how to manage real tax opportunity zones, but. These opportunity zones are politically motivated, and you can find things right on the line with really, call it well-to-do areas of cities that you can go in and redo properties and make a, a buck with these opportunity zone financings. And so, so what you see this opportunity zone idea is an indicator of okay, we're looking for return that is enhanced by structure. Structural alpha, right? Yeah. Let's create a deal taking advantage of the tax code as a boost to the potential return. Historic so tax returns, things like that. It's similar to that. Right. So it tells you how granular and where people are starting to look for uh, risk-adjusted returns, where they're looking for returns in the portfolio. They're using things like the tax code to find structural alpha, if that makes sense. Just, are you following me, Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating to me. Like, wow, there we go. I mean, we are really digging hard. Not let's invest in Charleston versus Richmond. It's let's invest in opportunity zones where it may or may not work, but we know we've got this built-in boost with the opportunity zone tax advantage. So people get having to get super, super creative, and, and there's lots of money chasing these deals, and it's feeling like things are getting very heated. Yeah, with central bank intervention, I mean – People pursue assets, right? Asset prices are going up, and so that's what they're trying to do. It does mean that there's this perverse effect that you keep looking at more and more esoteric opportunities, which have their own risks, right? Each of these individual deals have really different risks than putting yourself into an S&P, right, or some diversified portfolio. Uh, The hard part for most families is they may not understand. They don't have the requisite talent or capability of executing on these deals. It sounds great for families to invest with families, but it's actually really hard to do the due diligence, do the management, and when things go wrong, work yourself out of it because not everybody is similarly situated in terms of term of investment or liquidity, relative wealth, experience, et cetera. So I don't know, that, that's a, maybe well, a different in the few, topic. In but. the few minutes we have left, I'd like you to try the best you can to look into this hazy crystal ball. We are in uh, a really long period. We talked about the record bull market. Mm-hmm. We talked about unemployment. They keep hitting us over the head with this number that, that you know, job openings have not been at this peak since however long. We're at be- well below the natural rate of unemployment. Inflation has been in check. Stock market obviously at high. Real estate, the banks, we capitalize paying chunky dividends and everything. And yet the Fed is nowhere near it was in terms of interest rate policy before this crisis. And we're not talking real or nominal, just absolute. But more worryingly, I look at places like Switzerland, which has ne- negative interest rates. I look at some of the Scandinavian economies. The, 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 the pedal is not all the way to the metal in terms of stimulus, but it's still out there. And is there any sort of risk of, of a, a shock in that end, like the way 1994, the Fed had to slam on the brakes? I definitely think so. I, I had a, I've gotten a very long discussion with uh, one of the senior strategists at Wells Fargo that runs their whole strategy. And we were debating, should the Fed 
raise rates? Should they continue? What's the point of raising rates? And we had this long debate over lunch one day. And at the end of it, it was sort of like, well, at least it will give them something to do <laughs> should the equity markets. Right. It gives them arrows in the quiver. That's if really the market it. can handle it, you could keep right. tucking arrows into the quiver. Correct. So they have something to do. Like it, it wasn't based on monetary policy or physical stimulus. It was all based on, well, it'll, it'll give us something to do if, in fact, we go through another 08. Because at the time, this was probably a year ago. They hadn't started raising rates to the point they are now, and it was still really, really, really low. And it was thinking, gosh, the equity markets are, are going like gangbusters. If something happens, what's the Fed going to do? Right? Because they pumped as much money as they can QE in at for an item, and it's kind of done with that. So I think that there is peril, and I think and the Fed is trying to manage that. I, I know that the current administration hates that the Fed keeps raising rates because they keep talking about it. Like, why are you raising rates all the time under my administration? I'm pretty sure that. The previous administration had the, the Fed governors in a dark site in Gdansk, Poland. You know, they were just not allowed to talk to anyone. Um, I don't know, Biff, what you think about that. Well, I can just tell you how we are investing right now, if that's helpful. Please I mean, do. we think we're late cycle. So in terms of sort of credit or fixed income exposure, we want to be higher in the capital stack, so safer part of the debt structure and companies, not equity and not mezzanine, but, you know, higher up, close to the bank debt, which is fully secured by the assets of an entity. We want to focus more on cash generation rather than on capital appreciation in those kind of areas. And then we're looking to the private markets, trying to get out of the public markets because a lot of the, well, most of the public market movement is just based on human behavior. And we want to get out of that roulette machine and go to places where true business people executing business plans, growing businesses, employing people, generating returns, sort of basic blocking and tackling of economics. That's where we feel like we're better off putting our money. I have to thank you for resisting the uh, the urge to use the bullshattery of the easy money has been made. You know, we see more uh, buyers and sellers on have the sidelines. Overbought, oversold. It's ridiculous. There's a great chart that I think Ritholtz Wealth yes, ran this week. Yes, this week. The easy money has been made at all these different troughs times. in the market 17 times. Or other. The other one is in, in, in you know January of every year, every Personal Finance Magazine comes out as this is the year the 35-year bond bubble finally explodes. And, you know, there's an element of crying wolf over time. Like you, your eyes glaze over when you see things like this and you're tempted to think it's got to be so different this time. People are indexing. People are throwing money into a kind of a passive thing. It's, it's so quaint to look at the crash of 87 and see these people panicking on the financial news network, CNBC the next day over tiny, tiny, tiny volumes. And I think back to the flash crash in 2008, and you're talking about the 10 year of 2008 and all that stuff, um, you know, investing I've never memories forgotten are... 2008 when Lehman went down. Yeah. Some colleagues and I were sitting at a Saturday around a table, a kitchen table. We were doing strategic planning. But instead, all of a sudden, we were like, oh, my goodness, are we now going to guns and seed? Are the markets going to stop functioning? Have we really come to the end of the world? I've never forgotten that. Same thing happened to me with Business Week. I always tell the story, but people came at the close. It was uh, you know, later that winter that, that said, you don't know this kid. You haven't lived through the Depression. We're going to be eating cat food. And I said, well, at least we'll be in the soup line eating cat food together. I mean, you know, this is pretty binary. The Fed but, can either let this entire thing collapse or not. But Robin, Robin, Robin. And I'm an old guy. I mean, you guys are young. But I had to deal no. with the whole nifty oh 50 drawdown, Stop. man. I We're dealt both with older that. than you by a lot. <laughs> Robin, people own. Close us out, Brian Broadway. Well, I would just say this. People make certain buying decisions and, and investing decisions as really to certain assets in their life that they then suspend when it comes to other assets in their life. For instance... 
I would venture to guess that every homeowner in America, most, the large majority of homeowners in America have insurance. And that is a, that has an absolute negative expected return, right? You hope you never have to use it, but you do it every year happily. You do it happily. And so normally you wouldn't um, do something like that, that you know has a negative expected return and do it happily. Okay, so when we go to your investment portfolio, your greater portfolio, you do things in that portfolio that, that say, you know, it, I know this is what is best, right? It, it might cost me something, but I know it's what's best for me. And so when you, when you think about your investment, when we think about family's investment portfolio, it's not always about beating the market, hitting a home run, making the most money possible. It's about building a portfolio that's thoughtfully constructed that has a long-term perspective, that is willing to have good years and not so good years, but we avoid the 50% drawdown. So we have to apply certain behaviors to our investment portfolio that we seem to be fine with in other assets like our houses. Does that make sense? It does. I agree. Leave me alone. I'm a family man. We're going to use that song by Hollow Notes for the top of this show. I prefer Def Leppard. Is there a song about family, family offices? Pour some sugar on me. (laughs) Brian Broadway of Griffin Capital Management, Biff Pusey of Velpar Investments. Thank you so much, you family investing gurus. I really appreciate this. Come back. Can I use that title now, guru? My family will think I'm really smart. Let me tell you something. You can't see this on radio, but these gentlemen have exquisite heads of hair. And it doesn't do them justice to come on this nappy radio show because they they are very well coiffed. Robin, it's a pleasure to be here, and one of the great reads of 2017 was Hotel Scarface, and I am thrilled about the uh, word that I've recently gotten that there will be uh, a series, is that correct? From your lips to the good Lord's ears. And I just want to make it known, these both of these really fine sets of hair would be great as extras. All right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll work on that. I'll get back to you. Um, yes, sir. Full disclosure, John Valentine is our audio engineer. We are on NPR One. Love us. Download the app. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. You know what? We are high risk, no return. Highly correlated to submerging markets. Standardly deviant. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Bye.